I will um, never forget. Had a friend of mine, James, in my church in Texas. His wife, Kelly, had trusted Christ as her Savior and had been coming to church for a while. But James had grown up in a very difficult family situation. And um, because of the choices he made, he ended up in prison for a while. And in prison, he trusted Christ as his Savior, helped him get clean from the addictions that he struggled with, and helped him begin to overcome the guilt, the fear, the doubt. Yet, when I meet him, he's still kind of got those things going on, and he's still a little concerned about coming to a place like this with people like you, church folks he'd call y'all. You know, you know how to dress up, you know the words of the song, you know when to stand up, you know when to sit down. Those kind of things. And so the first Sunday he actually came to our little church there in Venus, Texas, I was towards the front of the sanctuary visiting with somebody, and I saw him come in through the back door. We had a rectangular sanctuary, and you could see right into the little entryway there. And I swear to you, he walked in the back door, and he kind of did one of these numbers. And then as he kind of crept into the sanctuary, he went over to one of the support columns and kind of did like this. He walked all the way across the sanctuary to the other side to one of the support columns that was inside the sanctuary and did like this. About that time, I couldn't stand it any longer. I walked down the aisle to him. I said, James, good to see you. Glad you're in church this morning. Do you mind if I ask what you're doing? He said, I just thought the place would fall down when I walked in. I said, well, it stood for 40-something years already, and it looks like it's okay right now. So unless, you know, God brings a tornado or an earthquake, I think we're okay. And I went to introducing him to some other men in the church like you might expect me to do. So he might feel a little more comfortable. It was amazing to see what God did in James's life. So much so that as he became part of our fellowship in a few weeks, even though he had trusted Christ months before, he still had some habits of the world. And on one Sunday night when I said, let's give testimonies for things, various people standing up talking about various things and, you know, praise the Lord for this, praise the Lord for that. Some folks with prayer requests. I'll never forget, he kind of shyly stood up and he's holding on to the back of the pew and his knuckles were white and he was kind of shaking. He says, I I just got to tell y'all, y'all are the blankety blank nicest group of folks I've ever been around and I'm so blankety blank happy that Jesus saved me. You should have seen all the church folks there. They were like, (laughs) they didn't know whether to get happy or whether to crawl under a pew. I said, well, James, that's probably the most colorful testimony everybody's heard in this church. But we're glad you're here, and we're glad Jesus saved you. Now, friends, you may not have had a life like James. You might not have grown up in a rough family situation. You might not have struggled with addiction. You might not have been to prison. But here's the facts for all of us. All of us have sinned, right? The Bible says in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So let's just be honest here. We're in church, right? It's not going to fall down. But if you are a sinner, raise your hand. Yeah, all of us, no matter your age, no matter your uh, you know, education, no matter where you grew up, we're all sinners. And the Bible says to us that that sin earns us death. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. That on our own, our sin is going to end us in eternity in hell without God, separated from His presence in a torment like we can't imagine. 
But, Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Amen? So we know that there is hope. We have to admit that, yes, I'm a sinner too. But we also have to come to the point of repentance and saying, I can't save myself, but Jesus can. Not only can he, but he will because of his great love for me. And that's what we're talking about at the base of this sermon today, restoration from sin. If you've read ahead in this passage of Scripture, or you think about where we were at last week, what we're finding here is we're going to look at where Peter denies Jesus. Remember three times then the rooster crows, you know, that whole business that we even portray up here on this stage uh, in our This Day of Resurrection Easter pageant. That's what we're talking about. And so... I want us to start with that basis to remember, however. Eugene Peterson says it this way, that every congregation is a congregation of sinners. We've already established that. But here's the next part. As if that weren't bad enough, they all have sinners for pastors too. (laughs) All right, so we got that part on the table. We're all sinners, including this joker up here. And here's the way I wrote about it and thinking about it this week. And this one may even be tweet-worthy, but I wrote it myself, so maybe not. We're not a gathering of righteous people sitting in judgment of sinners, however. We are a gathering of sinners seeking Jesus' righteousness. Amen? We're not a gathering of righteous people sitting in judgment of sinners. If that is you, you are welcome to leave. Or better yet, stay And let the Holy Spirit work on your self-righteousness and your pride. Because that's exactly where we're going today. We are a gathering of sinners seeking the righteousness that Jesus and Jesus alone can give to us. Friends, the forgiveness that God makes available to us through Christ Jesus may be the single greatest gift of all time. Because think about it. If it wasn't for the fact that God loves us and is willing to forgive us, then we could not get saved. And if we cannot get saved, we're damned to eternity in hell. We need God's love. We need his forgiveness, not just for eternity, but for our day to day. Think about how God has revealed himself to us throughout history. Just write down Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 and 7. I'm going to read it to you. And he, that's God, passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes their children and their children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation. There's that part about judgment and punishment. But did you hear the first part? Is God himself proclaiming of himself he is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in love at his his grace, his mercy that keeps us from judging us right on the spot and torching us because we're sinful. Micah chapter 7 verse 18, write that one down. The prophet Micah says, who is a God like you who pardons sin? In the world that Micah lived in and all the false gods, those gods were vehement and judgmental. But he believed he served a God that pardoned sins. He was true. 
It was correct. We do serve a God that pardons sins. And I know I told you to look in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. Keep a marker there, but turn back with me to 1 John chapter 1. So all the way to the back of your Bible to Revelation, and then swing a left a few pages because 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John are skinny, and Jude, you're going to miss it. But 1st John chapter 1 is when we talk about our sin and we talk about God's forgiveness, we've got to lay this down. 1st John chapter 1, verse 7, 8, and 9. He says, But if we walk in the light, talking to believers in Jesus, as he is in the light, talking about Jesus, in, uh, um, excuse me, we have fellowship with one another. So that's believers in Jesus. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. That's good. It's Christ who does that for us. Verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and there is, the truth is not in us. Keep that in mind, friends. We're all sinners. You can't claim to be without sin because then you're a liar and that's a sin. You've sinned a whole lot more than that, though. But look at verse 9. If you don't know verse 9, if you haven't memorized it, you need to underline it, circle it, highlight it, screenshot it, memorize it, everything. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Everybody say all. All. He will purify us from all. All unrighteousness. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter what's been done to you, God loves you and will forgive you and purify you from all unrighteousness, not punish you. This is the God we serve. And this is the God that knows that we're sinners and we can't do anything on our own, but He seeks to restore us from sin. Yet, he's also gracious enough to show us, and we're going to see through our sermon today, how we get into sin in order that we might avoid sin. But the bottom line of our sermon today is that when we do sin, and it's inevitable that we will, he will forgive us. And how do we get there too? So we're going to look back first, then we're going to look at the incident of the denial Then we're going to look at going forward. Three different parts to our sermon today. In the main part, and I just spent a long time on the introduction as well, building for us God's great love for us. Let's put our Scripture memory verse for the month up because it speaks to these themes as well. And that Scripture memory verse of the month is 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14 and 15. And say it with me now. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. For Christ's love compels us. Because we're convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 and 15. Let's pray together. God our Father, we are convinced that Jesus died for us and He desires that we might live for Him. It is so easy to live for ourselves, to satisfy our own desires, not to think about others, 
and to just do what comes natural. Yet we have to confess our sins that keep us from you. And as we look at the steps towards sin and then restoration from sin today, we pray as always you'd speak to us by your Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we offer this prayer. And everyone said, Amen. So friends, the first point on your outline says steps towards sin. Now, what we're going to do, obviously, like we do every week, is look at what's happening in the Scripture and apply that to our lives. Because the Scripture can be applied. So although these are the specific steps towards Peter's sin of denying Jesus, I guarantee you that all of us are going to be hung up on one or two of them, if not all of them. And if you're creative and thoughtful, you can go, oh, I can think of a few more steps to sin, Pastor Aaron. Let me make my own. Because we've all been there, right? So the first one, as we see in Matthew 26, 33, is risky self-confidence. Risky self-confidence. That's number one there on your outline. Risky self-confidence. So if you're in Matthew chapter 26, and... You remember the scene, if we step back a few weeks in our mind or step back in your passage of Scripture, that starting in verse 17 is the Lord's Supper. It was the Passover meal that Jesus was observing with His disciples. And they have this meal, and Judas uh, goes out, and then you have verse 31. That Jesus told them this very night, You will fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep and the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. So Jesus is predicting for them what they don't believe yet. Even though they know something's going to happen, they don't know that the Romans are going to come take him away, or excuse me, the temple guards, the Romans, all that mob is going to come get him shortly. And so then Peter replies, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. God bless Peter. How many Peters have we got around this place? You are going to stand up, and I mean, it's going to be like you live your life with open mouth, insert foot, right? That's the way you go. You just say what you think because you're this a feeling person, and you're, I, I, this is how I feel. I'm not going to go back. I'm not going to change. I believe I can do this. Well, friends, sometimes our self-confidence is merited, but in the case of something like this, that's why I use the word risky, when we make a pronouncement like this, that we would never turn away from Jesus, it was unfounded confidence in himself. It was boasting. How many times do we get cocky and attribute too much good and not enough realism to ourselves? I mean, yes, this was the Peter who had walked on water until he sunk. And about to deny Peter that had proclaimed Jesus the Christ until, well... He's about to deny him. He was certain he'd already become spiritually mature enough that he wouldn't fall away. Yet there was one more major thing that was to happen to catapult his maturity forward. And that's what's going to happen in our sermon here today. We'll get there in a few moments. Number two on your outline is dangerous defiance. Dangerous defiance. So, Jesus says, verse 34, I tell you the truth. This very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Now, time out. Let's just remember who Jesus is, right? Remember that Peter had spent three years with him. He had seen Jesus heal all sorts of blind people, uh, people with 
that were lame in some way or the other. He had seen Jesus raise people from the dead. He had seen Jesus walk on water and give him the ability to walk on water until he took his eyes off of Jesus. I mean, he had seen miraculous, crazy, supernatural stuff, right? And Jesus says to him, here's the deal, dude. You're going to deny me three times. And then he has the nerve to argue with Jesus. But Peter declared, and this in the Greek is strong, right? This is emphatic. Peter declared, even if I have to die for you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Who says you're going to do that? Jesus. Who says you're not? Peter. Use dangerous defiance, friends. How many times do we know the right thing to do, but we do what we want to do? How many times do we know that it's sin, but we sin anyway? That we're just like Peter, and we're stepping towards a greater failure in sin. We overestimate ourselves about what we think we can do or what we will do. But it's only our thinking with no action, dreams with no track record or history to back it up of how unfaithful we are and how weak we are. Just like Peter. Too much self-confidence and then just outright defiance of what God says of us. Your third point here, number three, is indifferent prayerlessness. I know that's a big word, but it's three words kind of put together, right? Prayerlessness. Well, ness isn't a word, but you get the idea. Prayerlessness. I mean, I couldn't think of an easier word to put here. I could have just put, he didn't pray. Okay, but it was more than that. Remember what's going on here. Jesus then, after this denial, says, okay, guys, we got to go to Gethsemane. And we're going to go pray this olive grove and this place with the olive press that it was known that Jesus went there. This was his private place, his retreat. You may have some sort of place like that, a prayer closet or a place where you know that you can go to be without distractions to focus on your time with God. And Jesus goes here and he takes all the disciples with him, but then he leaves, you know, most of them uh, back somewhere else, the eight that were there. And he takes the three inner circle and further with him. And he says, even to them, you stay here and pray. I'm going to go a little further and pray by myself. So whether he was in earshot of them, I don't know. And what happened? Verse 39, going a little further, he, so I'm in Matthew 26, verse 39, he, Jesus, fell with his face to the ground. My father, it is impossible. May this cup be taken from me, not as you will, but as, not as I will, but you will. Verse 40, then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. He just told them, guys, I need you to pray for me. And what do they do? They fall asleep. And he says, could you not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. You remember that phrase, fall into temptation there, isn't just meaning at that very moment. It is a perfect tense, meaning ongoing for the rest of their life. You need to be watchful and you need to be prayerful because if you are not prayerful continually, Jesus is saying, you will fall into temptation and therefore you will sin. That's what Jesus is saying to them right there. And then he says to them this, I've used it many times even in jest. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Have you? I mean, it's like a cliche, right? You know, 
Even if it's uh, having to do with an extra piece of pie at Thanksgiving. I'm like, dude, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Give me another piece of pie, right? But Jesus says, I know you want to do the right thing, but you're not going to be able to. Therefore, you need to pray. Does that mean you need to stand up so you won't fall asleep? I mean, how many of you have gone to spend time in prayer, but you find yourself like dozing off or you find your mind wandering? Maybe you need to pray or walk, okay? Literally, it's okay if you can still focus to get up, go out in your neighborhood and walk laps or whatever so that your body is moving so you won't fall asleep, but your mind can still focus on Jesus. Does this mean you don't say hello to the neighbor walking their dog? Well, that's up to you, you know. But do whatever it takes to stay awake. And what happens here? Two more times, three times total, Jesus comes back and these guys are falling asleep each time, even though he woke them up and warned them the first two times. Peter was indifferent in his prayerlessness. Jesus was telling him, you got to pray to be ready for what is about to happen. But Peter let his physical tiredness supersede the spiritual need of the moment and fell asleep. How many of us are that way? God speaks to us through his word because we're reading our Bibles daily and we hear a message from scripture that we know is for us. And then we think, okay, got that done, check. And out the door we go. And we don't spend the time to pray it through and to think it through and to put on the armor of God and to guard our hearts lest we fall into sin because of our prayerlessness. Let's move on to the fourth one, is defensive impulsiveness. Defensive impulsiveness. Now, this one's pretty easy. The mob comes to take away Jesus. Peter pulls out a sword, whacks a guy's ear off, right? I don't know how he just whacked his ear off and not the rest of him. Did the dude duck? I mean, or, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know. But one way or the other, Jesus heals the guy's ear. His name is Malchus. You can read about it in Scripture. Luke 22, Matthew 26 here. Mark 14, John 18, all four parallel passages. When you're not prepared spiritually for what comes to you, you react in a fleshly, superficial, and oftentimes sinful manner. That's exactly what Peter did here. Because he wasn't prayed up. And even though he had Jesus right beside him, he wasn't walking closely with the Father by the Spirit. And he didn't trust what Jesus said of him. So what did he do? He did what any of us would do. I'm going to get angry and try to solve this myself. Whack! How'd that work out for him? It was only because, you know, Jesus healed the dude. And by Jesus' presence, the whole mob, it said, remember, fell on their feet when he spoke to them that Peter didn't end up arrested and in jail himself. His impulsiveness demonstrated another step towards sin. So now let's come ahead to verse 58. And your fifth point there is a vulnerable location. So they've carted Jesus off and they're going to take him to trial these kangaroo courts that we talked about last week. But Peter followed him at a distance right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. 
Now, we could say about this, Peter was being brave. Peter wanted to see what was happening. He was the leader of the disciples. Then he could go back and report to them exactly what happened. But looking at the steps that he's taken so far, his risky self-confidence, dangerous, defiant, indifferent prayerlessness, defensive impulsiveness, it might have been better if Peter had stayed away because of what happens next. Peter has demonstrated a pattern for us clearly to see in these scriptures I've outlined for you that he was all about himself and full of flesh and not full of the Spirit of God, not able to resist temptation and not able to keep himself from sinning. Let me ask us, are you able to keep yourself from sinning all on your own? Sometimes you can, you know, put up boundaries and say, oh, I'm not going to go there or get accountability. And on our own, we can do things. But we need the Spirit of God to guard us, to guide us. And we also need to keep ourselves from temptation. If you've struggled with alcoholism, do you need to go hang out in a bar? No. If you struggle with overeating, do you need to go you know, to the aisle in the supermarket that has the stuff that tempts you? No. If you struggle with depression, do you need to do the sort of activities that depress you? No. If you get too close to what's dangerous to you, it becomes all too easy for you to slip. Peter was too close. He was already too vulnerable. He was right there at the edge of sin. Your summary statement there is that his selfish pride got him into trouble. That's the next statement on your outline. His selfish pride got him into trouble. Now, you know, we talk about pride in a good way uh, at times when it's, you know, pride in your ability to do something or, uh, you know, there's the positive way, but that's why I'm using the phrase selfish pride. This was him believing more of himself than he should have. This was him walking in the flesh, not in the spirit. I want you to look over with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So you're in Matthew. Uh, Go left with me in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, and then you get to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Verse 12. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 reminds us, So if you think you are standing firm, like Peter, be careful that you don't fall. It's a warning. There may be some of you today that need to, you know, screenshot this and put it as the, um, what do you call it, the lock screen of your phone. To warn yourself regularly that you too could fall into temptation. So that's the warning of verse 12, but look at the grace, the hope, the mercy of verse 13. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. In other words, you're tempted just like every other person. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. In other words, He's going to be there for you. Why? How? Look at the last phrase. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. In the midst of his selfish pride that got him into trouble, in the midst of our selfish pride that can get us into trouble, we need to be reminded of God's grace that we don't have to just go, okay, I'm about ready to sin, I'm just going to do it, who cares? No, you have a choice. You have a choice to obey God or you have a choice 
to fall into sin. You have a choice to ask God to provide a way out or a choice to go headlong in. So let's ask your application question there. How does my selfish pride hurt me? You may not have faced a situation like Peter. Any of the five descriptors of Peter may not quite fit you, but certainly you're human and you've had selfish pride get you down at times. And how does it hurt you? All of us have been there. So now let's coming head to our second major point on our outline today, and that's what I call falling into sin. I want to read that for you. Matthew 26, verse 69. Now Peter, who was sitting in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. She's identified elsewhere as a servant of the high priest, so she saw him in the garden when they arrested Jesus. Verse 70, but he denied it before them all. I do not know what you're talking about, he said. Verse 71, then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to him. Now, uh, another version, it says it's the same one, spoke to him twice. One way or the other, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. So he like swears at her. Heck no, you know, something like that. I don't know the man. Verse 73, after a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. People from Galilee sounded to us like sometimes people from, say, New York City or New Jersey or the Deep South. That Those of us here in Nebraska that don't have much of an accent think that those people are less intelligent than us just because they have some funny accent. They're not less intelligent. They just sound differently. Different, excuse me. But the people from Galilee were made fun of by the people from Jerusalem because they had this hick kind of accent, and it's a backwater town. And so his accent gave him away. But look at what he does there in verse 74. Then he began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. That phrase, call down curses, is anathematize, like anathema, that word we know. And he swore to them. And what happens? Immediately, the rooster crowed. And if you read in Luke twenty-two sixty-one, it says that Jesus turned and looked straight at him. So even though he was in the courtyard of the temple... Whether Jesus was through a doorway or a passageway, we don't know. But Luke reports it, that Jesus turned and looked right at him. Can you imagine the daggers, the conviction, the pain in both of their hearts? Verse 75, Then Peter remembered the words that Jesus had spoken before the rooster crows, You will disown me three times. As I was thinking about this, I got to the next point on your outline there that my sin is more obvious than I think. We think we do a pretty good job hiding things. 
Other people know something's going on. God certainly knows something's going on. Jesus has said in Matthew 23, 28 of the Pharisees, outwardly you look like righteous people, but inwardly your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. Kind of like us church folks sitting up in here, right? John MacArthur says that a person's involuntary response to the unexpected is a more reliable indicator of his character than his planned reaction to a situation he anticipates. Which leads us to your next question. When do I get so defensive? What puts you on your heels and makes you defensive? That in your pride... You're going to deny things. You're going to go against what you know is right because you don't want to look bad because you don't want to be affiliated with Jesus. R.T. France said that this story is just told with vivid simplicity in three escalating scenes, each one increasing the pressure. Remember that first denial? Peter just said, denied it. Don't know what you're talking about. The second denial, he said he denied it with an oath. I don't know the man. The third time he denied him, he said he called down a curse on himself and he swore to him, I don't know the man. When do you get that defensive? So let's go back to the beginning of our sermon. We know we're all sinners. And let's get to the conclusion. Restoration from sin. Is anybody ready to hear about the mercy in this, the grace in this, the hope in this, the restoration from sin? Your first point under that is seeing Jesus. I believe that it wasn't just when Peter proclaimed the third time, no. And it wasn't just when he heard the rooster crow, but as Luke records in chapter 22, verse 61, it was when he saw Jesus. And he knew of Jesus' love for him. He knew that Jesus was the Messiah. He knew that Jesus died for his sins. And he loved Jesus as a friend and a brother. That his heart was utterly broken. And that was the beginning of his repentance. Friends, I say that to say we've got to know Jesus. That's why I say all the time you've got to read your Bible. All the time you've got to pray. Because when you know Jesus... It's a whole lot harder to sin against him because you love him, because you see how much he loves you. So that blank there is seeing Jesus, seeing Jesus. The second blank in restoration from sin is real repentance, real repentance. Now, in verse 75, the second part, it says, and he went outside and wept bitterly. Pastor Aaron, where do you get that he really repented there? Anybody can cry about something. I think it's genuine because of what you see happen in Peter's life going forward from this point. He was a changed man, dependent on the Holy Spirit, full of power by the Holy Spirit. Not so impetuous and rash, but bold. Mark 14, the way it tells it, that he broke down and wept. 
2 Corinthians 7.10, write that down, says that godly sorrow brings repentance. And for our final point, I want you to turn back to read Peter's words that he wrote himself in 2 Peter. So you were in 1 John a few minutes ago. Go to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. The last words that Peter wrote that are recorded as Scripture. How close he was until the time that he would die and meet Jesus again in heaven, I don't know. But the last words that Peter wrote recorded in Scripture show us that he was restored. Show us that he was repentant. Show us that he was changed and filled by the Holy Spirit. What does it say? It says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 17 and 18, Therefore, dear friends, since you already know this, everything he's been telling them about, be on guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position. He's thinking back. I believe to his sinfulness and to his denial. And he says, we know we're going to fall. So watch out for it. And then read verse 18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. How are you going to keep yourself from falling? How are you going to be restored from sin? By growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. By spending time in the Bible by memorizing it, by meditating on it, by praying over it. Because it's all about His glory. So that third point there is a growing relationship. And you might add, with Jesus. Not just a growing relationship with your spouse, which is great, with your kids, with your coworkers, which are all good, but a growing relationship with Jesus. Then we have to ask one last question. How's my personal relationship with Jesus doing right now? It was from Peter's broken, humble dependence on God's power that he was transformed and used to be a world changer. What about you? John Stott says... Peter could not become the rock until he realized how weak he was in his own strength. He could not bring in the kingdom with his sword or with his loyalty, only with his dependence on God. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we consider our own lives, In our own sinfulness and shortcoming, we have to confess before you that we are all sinners. And we need your grace, not just to save us. We thank you for the gift of eternal salvation, but we need your grace and mercy daily. Daily to guard us from temptation, to keep us from sin to fill us with your Holy Spirit that we might know how to live. So, Father, our prayer is that as you've been moving by your Spirit now and we've been convicted that we would repent and turn from our sin and that we would come to you. Father, if one of us needs to trust Jesus Christ as our personal Savior and Lord, that we would do that now. We need to join this church family to grow closer. We would do that now.
But certainly, all of us that need to repent, we would do that now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.